Hi, I'm Gemma Kaneko, and welcome back to Cannonballs. It's the podcast where we jump right into the deep end of the literary canon. I'm here with Ben Cosman. Hi, Ben. Hello, Gemma. How are you? I'm all right. You know, a little sick. You can probably hear it in my voice. And Ben Gullard, aka Other Ben. Hi, Other Ben. Hello, Gemma. Hello, Other Other Ben. <laughs> other Other oh, Other Ben. ben. Eventually, this will be just only Bens. That's uh-huh. um, my podcast network. <laughs> the so, ben cast the ben the benlet podcast the ben gimlet i'm trying to do a gimlet, gimlet joke i can't think of it though. wow that was that was weak anyway we are jumping into part three or four of bleak house uh we are talking about chapters 33 to 49 that's like 615 plus pages of dickens because this book is really really long you can find our past two episodes on our podcast feed on apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts from um this book is just getting more and more insane, which I love because it's fun to read, but also it's just bananas. So I have organized this episode uh, by WTF questions because the entire time I was reading this book, I just kept asking myself, WTF is this? Uh, so it's in order of the most, like the least crazy to the most crazy, because I feel like we should end on a high note, much like last week's episode ended with spontaneous combustion. So, <laughs> you know, we really gotta, really gotta go all in on this. So question i love love that last week we were sort of talking about how you know we had the spontaneous combustion we figured out who esther's parents were and we were like what how is dickens possibly going to fill another 500 pages of this and it's by doing a lot of fucked up shit shoot a man through the heart (laughs) i can't wait i can't wait we're definitely going to get to that totally awesome thing and also i made a great bon jovi joke about it earlier and ben cosman did not appreciate it it was pretty good i was working Gemma. i'm sorry (laughs) anyway question number one um smallweed grandpa smallweed is somehow mr crook's brother-in-law because uh-huh. senile grandma is married to him I, and that's his sister I, that i was like okay apparently this is like star wars and there's only like seven families in the entire city of london that can possibly be in, interacting with, with each other at any time well Gemma, i I think it's because the small weeds are like literal weeds where they just grow into everything and are impossible to remove. <laughs> so they just are just somehow. They are the engaged. weeds of this book. Mm-hmm. I just want, okay, but why? Like, what is the point of them? What are they doing here? So they get to take over the shop after Crook spontaneously combusts, and they, I guess the the plot device they're serving is keeping everyone else from going through Crook's papers and therefore finding evidence that the opium law writer is Esther's dad. But, like, why are they in this book? Why? I think it's that, I mean, man, my high school English teacher would love this because it's like, well, just look at the name, Smallweeds. Like, that they are, their sole purpose is to crowd out, like, every other, like, financial <laughs> interaction that's happening in London, apparently. Like, that's the whole idea of, like, the backbone of English law is to keep English law going. It seems like that their business is a business. And that just by, like, the nature of who they are, like, even in their family name, that their business is to just get into other people's business. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out their the Smallweed's relationship with Tulkinghorn because they put they put the screws on Mr. George a little bit in the beginning of the section we read. Uh, yeah. And it seems like the Smallweed's are George's landlords and then George is behind on his rent so they get Tulkinghorn to go after George. 
But it seems like are, are they, Mr. George borrowed money from them in order to right, buy right. his shooting gallery. So they're more just like the bank, like collecting on the loan. Right. right? I, I believe they're like Grandpa Smallweed is just, you know, to go back to your Star Wars metaphor, he's just Jabba the Hutt and mm. everybody owes him money. <laughs> It's so true. Yes. Um, yeah. I do want to point out the fact that he, there's one, so Mr. Smallweed, we talked about this last week, Mr. Smallweed and his wife, who is senile and just shouts money term or money things whenever she thinks someone's talking about money. Um, and he, he throws things at her and he keeps things nearby to throw at her. And in this section, he literally throws his granddaughter at his <laughs> wife because he has nothing else to throw. Uh, and I'm sure that Judy is just, like, brushing it off, because she's already just the angriest, meanest little girl, uh, which is incredible. So, Smallweed, terrible. All right, I guess that wasn't the most WTF question, so we're going to turn up the WTF a little bit. With WTF question number two, Lady Deadlock tells Esther that she's her mother, but after this one time that they cry and hug each other in the woods, they can Mm -hmm. never speak again. Why... Is Lady Deadlock making this so scandalous and dramatic? Like, why do you think that she they can't acknowledge each other ever again? Um, I mean, it's got to be that she's afraid of... I mean, it, it sort of talks about this in, later in the section, where she's afraid of ruining her husband's reputation by revealing that she has had a uh, child out of wedlock. But I don't... Also, I we can talk about this a little bit more, but I do want to get to the lead-up to this reveal when Lady D actually confronts Esther because it's... There's a lot going on. There's a pony named Stubbs, <laughs> and there's a lot going on. <laughs> I like the pony. The pony is really bad at being a pack horse. <laughs> yeah, it won't do anything. Yeah. And again, we go to the Boythorns, and we get no Mr. Boythorn! I'm so mad. Yeah, he's out of town. Oh, because I guess the whole lead up to this is that Esther was really sick, which we will definitely talk about. Now she's ugly. Yeah, Yeah. she's. Yeah, that's another WTF question is what is the sickness that for some reason left her extremely disfigured? But Charlie got out of it fine. Same sickness doesn't like look any different. Yeah, I don't get it. What is that? That whole thing, I have no idea what's going on. Esther is just convinced of her ugliness and like people seem to see it. Where there's a ch- there's a child in the town that asks his mother why is the lady not a pretty lady anymore? <laughs> and it's just like I don't know, Dickens. I don't know what you're going for here. I I that, that the whole illness. I was like, wh- how this is just like to give Esther some other burden to bear, other than the fact that she's an illegitimate child, and also everyone keeps telling her it would have been better if you were never born. <laughs> I I think it's a good like swirling around and. Uh... I think holding up like a mirror, (laughs) quite literally, to like her relationship to herself. Like (laughs) at one point, her talking about like how when she was growing up, she would be like playing with her dolls in front of the mirror, and she would have like these like moments of recognition of herself. I think she's actually talking about like seeing Lady Deadlock at that point. But like it keeps going back to this image of her like in her nursery playing with her doll in front of a mirror, and I'm really interested. Yeah, in her own relationship to, like, who she is, because now she's got scars all over her face. And people see her differently rather than just this, like, pretty young lady. Which is so interesting because Esther doesn't tell us that she's pretty. In her entire narration, she's still like, oh, I'm I'm fine. Like, I, right. Ada's really pretty. I'm just here. I just exist on the earth. But we 
I, I find the subtlety with which she's written really fascinating. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in, in conjunction with another WTF question. Um, but I know people have not traditionally enjoyed Esther's parts of this novel, but I think there's so much secrecy and it, like intrigue and just the way she talks about herself. Like she doesn't want to say that she's attractive. Um, and she doesn't want to say that she's like a good person. So she describes other things that happened to her, but we know that her mother is really beautiful and we know that everyone seems to just like generally enjoy being around her. So you kind of become like, I at least came mm -hmm. to the conclusion that Esther was very, very beautiful and perhaps more so than Ada and was only constrained in her prospects because of her financial right. circumstances and sh like shadowy birth. Like, Mrs. Woodcourt obviously came to the house because she thought Esther was a real threat, like could really marry her son and was like, oh, this like poor hot chick is going to ruin my son's career. <laughs> so I just I find that really fascinating because yeah. it's so much less on the nose than everything else. Like everyone who has these names mm -hmm. that just tell you exactly what to expect from them. Yeah, And it's also like whenever she's talking about how similar she looks to Lady Deadlock and like they could be sisters or whatever. And everyone's like, man, you guys look exactly the same. And she, then she talks about how pretty the Lady Deadlock is, but never puts together or like seemingly in front of us, her audience, that she is actually quite beautiful. Until she's like, man, my face doesn't look so good anymore. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's this moment when she when so she's recovering at Boythorn's place and Ada's supposed to come see her, and Ada hasn't seen her the entire time mm -hmm. that she's been sick because they didn't want Ada to get the sickness. Um and she's so nervous that when Ada sees her, that Ada's going to freak out yeah. and, like, be scared of her new face or not like her anymore or run away. And I found this very, very affecting um, that she, like, runs to the carriage, but it's not Ada. And then she runs back and then she has to go <laughs> hide in her room because she's sweaty and upset. <laughs> like, there's just all this stress about what happens if her friend will still care about her because she's not pretty anymore. Um which is a whole thing that we can talk about a little bit later, but like the romantic female friendship in this book, which is absolutely what it is. Like it is definitely like her feelings toward Ada are a little bit romantic in, in substance, I think. Um, Especially when she seemingly has like these really strong protective instincts over Ada, mostly keeping her away from Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Richard. Oh, Richard. I anyway. started to like Richard in this section. Uh, we, uh, we, could, we don't have to talk about it, but I think he's right about a couple of things. He, we will we will definitely talk about him in our last question because that all sort of ties together, I think. But so we know about Lady Deadlock now. We know that she's Esther's mom. But also in the most like petty move in this book, Tulkinghorn finds out somehow and tells the entire assembly, like assembled Deadlock extended clan, a mm -hmm. story that exactly parallels Lady Deadlock's life story, like illegitimate childhood, etc. And it's just like, oh, but this is about some other woman and like tells it to the entire room with Lady Deadlock in the room so that she'll know that he knows. Right. And then later is like, wow, that was rough, wasn't it? <laughs> like, yeah, what was that? He's like, man, whoa. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to tell anybody. I, I don't think so unless you make sure that you do x y and z why that that was an incredible moment of just breaking it open by talking horn who is described constantly as someone who kind of has no personality but then he does this really really malicious insane thing mm -hmm. oh it was incredible that was an incredible moment i i that was one of the points where i had to go back and re like seemingly i was like i must have missed something huge here about talking horn and then tried to reread sections and couldn't really find out 
what that was that was really spurring him forward to do that. Yeah, what is what is going on? What does he want from her? Like he says that he his sole interest is protecting Sir Lester's interests mm-hmm. and that this would probably cause him to die of shock, so he can't tell him. And as long as Lady Deadlock just lives her life as exactly as she had before, then everything's fine until he feels like changing his mind, basically. I feel like this is something that probably goes back to, man, I hope we figure out what this case is about. Because, like, I think it goes back that he probably has some stake in this case that needs the status quo to remain as it is. Like, of, like, Lady Deadlock and Sir Lester and, uh all the different characters that owe each other money or have, like, property issues with each other, that he's somehow going to benefit from that by inserting himself into it. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> <if that's, laughs> this book has not satisfied me whatsoever in thinking that this is ever going to get figured out, though. I get the vibe that Tulkinghorn is just one of these social climbers who wants to be in a position of authority, authority over everyone, and Lady Deadlock and the Deadlocks together are kind of his... Um, white well and the fact that they seem to be the most powerful family in our story so if he can get an edge on them he's sort of king of the the whole town and i think that he is like had this building resentment toward lady deadlock with the she's seemingly a very like uh like self-directed and an autonomous woman that is able to like you know have everybody like whenever they like talk about going back to uh Chesney Wold, like, that everyone's, like, admiring her and stuff like that, and that she always has people's attention. It seems like he has just this, like, extremely petty and stupid male aggression towards her. Oh, I I think that's definitely part of it, and it's also a little... I agree with with all of these interpretations that it's also sort of a class thing. Like, Mm -hmm. if he gets to be on the top of things, like, if he gets to be in control of this one secret, he can kind of be like, all these people think they're better than me, but actually I'm better than them. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I think that's it. Gonna drink my old wine in my apartment. Oh, and (laughs) with his series of keys in different sized chests leading to, and then he oh right gets to the gold open. He has the golden eye system protecting his. uh... (laughs) I read that section; it was very confused. I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. (laughs) Ah. Take a, let's take a brief aside to talk about how insane Hortense is, the maid, oh, the, the French maid, <laughs> who apparently just keeps coming to Mr. Snagsby's house, the maid who at one point dressed up like Lady Dedlock in mm-hmm. order to prove that she Lady Dedlock had been around. Like she's this French maid. Also also Mr. Snagsby's whole section when he's like, Oh, some foreign person. <laughs> they're like Hortense, and he's like, Oh, oh yes, I don't even know how to say that name. It's right. too foreign. That French woman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she's just like, I will, I will ruin your life. <laughs> like I will come here every day well, and ruin your life until you, until you help me get revenge on Lady Deadlock for firing me. Yeah, and isn't also part of her thing that like she had to lend her clothes to Lady Deadlock so Lady Deadlock could pretend to be her when Joe was leading her around the graveyard or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and it seems like she's jealous of Rosa because she sort of got uh-huh. uh, leapfrogged. Um, yeah, but then Mr. Tolkienhorn, basically, this is the I think this is the cruelest he has been in this entire book so far. When he basically says, "You're not going to do anything because if you try anything, I will have you thrown in jail." Um, also, can you can you send someone to prison for multiple <laughs> years just for like showing up at your I'm house? Not entirely sure what the laws are in this book, so maybe. 
I think if you're I, a rich person in Dickensian England that you could just send poor people to jail if you wanted to. Yeah, I think that seems like exactly what the situation is. I just bought it. I was like, I was like, oh, this seems like maybe a violation of cruel and unusual punishment, but it's Dickensian yeah. England, so everything was cruel uh-huh. and unusual punishment. Yeah. I, uh, yep. I, for a lot of this book, you don't really see Tolkienhorn be cruel or evil. I remember even in the when we first met him in the very beginning, I think we meet him in the second or third chapter, he even seemed like sort of a good guy where he was this lawyer and he seemed just sort of fed up dealing with these, uh, you know, snobby rich people. But it's not until, you know, spoiler alert, right before his death that Dickens actually makes him really, truly cruel. Yeah, well, then I, I let's just move on right ahead to WTF question number three. Uh, Tolkienhorn is shot through the heart mm-hmm. in the night when he's in his apartment drinking old wine. Who Who did it? Who do you who do you think did it? Uh, I think Lady Deadlock, but I don't know. That's my uh, guess, also, because the narration goes to like, and then Lady Deadlock took a walk. Anyway, meanwhile, at the Tolkien apartment, <laughs> or I have my secondary guess is Phil. Oh, I <gasps> like Phil because oh. Phil has a gun. Yeah. Well, Phil's has a gun in everybody in this entire book. Yeah. And also, like, uh, and he's very protective of Mister George. And he, I think he can sense Mister George is in trouble. Interesting. I like. I that like a lot. that theory. I, I would like to. Re- I would like to read you a, uh, a a section from from the book when right before Talkinghorn um, tells his story, his fictional story about a lady who had a child out of wedlock. So right before that, all the cousins are there because they're working on this county election that they lose because obviously they're terrible people. Uh, so they're all sitting around and talking, and Sir Lester is in the middle of a of a monologue, and this is him talking at the beginning. He is, of course, handsomely paid, and he associates almost on a footing of equality with the highest society. Everybody starts, for a gun is fired close by. Good gracious, what's that? cries Volumina with her withered scream. A rat, says my lady, and they have shot him. <laughs> I, I, I love like, that. I yelped with that line. That was like the <laughs> best bird I have ever heard in my life. I was like, that is ice cold. That, again, like, I'm stuck on the names thing, but Volumnia's name actually makes sense now. Like, that she's the person that screams. Yeah, because she just talks all the time. I, I, love, yeah. I love her. She's my favorite, like, really minor character in this book. I forgotten about her <laughs> until, yes. Uh, she's, like, in her, she's, like, 55 years old, and she wears, like, way too yeah. much blush. Like, <laughs> uh, But that, I was like, wow. Because we are not that far removed from the section where Guppy came to visit Lady Deadlock, and the narration was like, if this had been even 50 years ago, she could have had him killed, yes. and no one would have and, known. And you can just, like, <laughs> see her wishing that she could do that to Tolkien Hearts. Oh, yeah. And then that line, I was like, wow, that is just ice cold, and you might have Tolkien Horn killed. So... I think that it's probably Lady Deadlock. The narration is definitely pointing us that way. I love Phil as an idea, but there's also the Dark Hortense. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Ow. That was good. Ow. Good pun. Maybe that's who it was. Maybe she said she hated him and that he threatened her, and she is obviously unhinged. Mm-hmm. So she's French and passionate, so that's not going to look good for her in the court. Yeah. Nobody likes nobody likes that. Uh-huh. Uh, could also go Simi Carton situation, you mm-hmm. know, Tale of Two Cities, where it is Lady Deadlock, but Hortense has a change of heart and she goes to jail mm-hmm. for it. 
who knows all Man, kinds I, of things i would like happen. to look at the registration ledger of the shooting gallery and see like who's been going <laughs> to practice the most often that we don't hear about yeah i yeah i i do i my secret wish is that it's jarndyce just because i want jarndyce to do something whoa but he uh, does something well he does something <laughs> yeah but but not that i don't want him to do yeah. that so, okay, so Jarndyce has definitely done something, mm-hmm. and that is the subject of WTS question number four. Uh, Jarndyce proposed to Esther, and why did he do that? It's so creepy. You can't just start, like, a, you can't basically take care of a child for her whole life and then marry her. That's really gross. Why did this happen? <laughs> However, I did tell you all this would happen. Yeah, you were right. You were right. I, uh, yes. I, uh, yes, I was. I did not want to believe it, but yeah. Yeah, it's a Woody Allen situation. Gross. <laughs> yeah, I when when he did this, and like, he did it in the worst possible situation, where he did it immediately after she confesses to him that she just learned who her mother is and can't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so she is emotionally vulnerable, and I feel like he knew that she was, so that's when he, why he did it. And he did uh, it in a letter, too. In a letter, and he's like, no pressure, you don't have to respond, but you are going to continue living in my house and living off all my money while I wait for you to accept my marriage proposal. Uh, like, even if she had, like, even if he had put it in a way that's like, oh, it's fine, because he kind of did say you can say no. But you're right. At the same time, she is entirely dependent on his generosity. He refuses to be thanked in any normal kind of way. So I'm sure she just feels sort of coerced. Like, there's really nothing else that she it could sounds do. sounds like a goddamn nightmare. Yeah. Yes. I, I, you know, I don't like Richard. But he's kind of right about Mr. Jarndyce. Richard really comes out hard against Jarndyce in this section, uh, mostly because he thinks Jarndyce has ulterior motives in terms of the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case, where he thinks, you know, Richard's loss is Jarndyce's gain. But I also think he just gets weird vibes from Jarndyce, and I think, you know, he's kind of right. spot on. (laughs) I thought this section was so good. This is just another example to me of how compassionately Dickens writes Esther because I'm sure that in a lot of fiction in this time and in fact does happen in other Victorian novels like Jane Eyre Mr. Rochester is substantially older Mm. than Jane and they it's that relationship is unorthodox because of their social class but no one seems to really be as like grossed out about their relative Mm -hmm. age gap uh it's the same thing in Wilkie Collins' No Name is one of the heroes the heroines like she's like 21 and she marries a 55 year old dude at the end and everyone's like yay congrats to you uh this is creepier this is creepier than both of those situations because Jarndyce is her actual guardian like in in a parental figure uh but she she's like she's like this is what she thinks and I'm gonna read it because I like it uh to devote my life to his happiness was to thank him poorly and what I had wished for the other night but some new means of thanking him still I cried very much not only in the fullness of my heart after reading the letter, not only in the strangeness of the prospect, for it was strange, though I had expected the contents, but as if something for which there was no name or distinct idea were indefinitely lost to me. I was very happy, very thankful, very hopeful, but I cried very much. Yeah. Yeah. Esther. She just doesn't... She lives in this world where she knows that what she's just been given is this great advantage, but... She can't, she doesn't have the feeling or the language to be like, wow, this is really screwed up. Ah, poor Esther. Yeah, I think she knows she's being taken advantage of. And it's one of those times when I'm like, I would really like to go time traveling. And were people like really just 
for back of a letter were divorced from the idea of sex being involved in marriage. Like when people wrote about it where they're like, well, you know, they're going to like do like the sex, but like, that's not really what the focus <laughs> is. The focus is like the societal gain and like relationship. Well, I think it is a little bit because the deadlocks presumably do not have sex. Mm-hmm. They don't have kids. Um, they sleep right. in different parts of the house. And I think that's also kind of common in a lot of these novels is that it, right. it, well, and, it's not really addressed. The characters that are portrayed as lower class that don't have societal gain from getting married are like lusty and base and have tons of children because of that. <laughs> and yeah, it's a really weird almost kind of like bloodless depiction of what was actually going on in these really creepy relationships. Well, that well, that I... brings me to one of my questions that I have, which is, so we're assuming Jarnus isn't marrying Esther to, you know, do the sex with her <laughs> because I'm, I, I, as far as I know, Jarnus is fairly old. Like he's probably on, you know, the Victorian era Viagra equivalent of whatever it is. Um, <laughs> it's a leather but strap. My question is, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's an air pump. Um, uh, some some sort yeah, of steam powered. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so my question is, what does Jarnus have to gain by marrying Esther? Like, presumably Esther isn't really going to go away anytime soon. I think there is some reference to the fact that he's going to lose. You know, he knows Esther and uh, Ada are both of marrying age, but a Esther just got real ugly apparently. And she's not even, she, even before that, she didn't seem to be even the most eligible bachelorette in the book. So my question is, what does Jarnus have to gain by proposing? And he, the fact that he does it immediately after Esther tells him she's a deadlock makes me very suspicious that Jarnus has, uh, again, like Richard suspects, ulterior motives in which he just wants to amass more of a fortune so that everyone is slowly just indebted to him without ever actually getting to thank him. Whoa. Wow. That is top-level <laughs> paranoid Richard thinking, and I am really into it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on Richard's side. I, I don't trust Jarnus at that's all. that's great. I don't, yeah, I, like I think it. that, like, just as we were talking through it, I was like, man, it's got to be something in that case. Like, there's got to be, like, everyone's trying right, to, it, I don't know, best one thing from each other. Yeah, it seems like a power grab. That is really fascinating. I feel like power grab is a strong idea here because uh, I didn't even connect it to him being like, "Oh, if you're if you're a deadlock, then you could be the key to this case." But because she wouldn't technically be a deadlock because she's not Sir, Sir Lester's kid, but she could somehow like undermine the deadlocks right. as a family, which is interesting. right. I mean, there is the fact that I think yeah. I, be- I it's sort of connected where Jarnus does make a reference. A, f- a while earlier, I think in the first section we read, where he tells Esther he has something to tell her, but not at the right, like it wasn't the right time. And I don't know if that was an oblique reference to the fact that he know he knew right away he wanted to marry her, but right, um, right. No, That's I, I, yeah, I don't pretense of like the letter, of like him he, being I like, it, I have something, you know, just like consider it, whatever. But I've been thinking about this for a long time. Yeah. Um. I. My, I, I find this also creepy. Also because I feel like Esther is, has a much more complicated sexuality than anyone is giving her credit for. Yeah, she, you know, her and Woodcourt have this on-again, off-again, or not on-again, off-again, but uh, sort of uh, mm-hmm. detente going on. 
Yeah, well, it's like, okay, so she goes to see Mr. Gubby to be like, please leave my mom alone, though she doesn't say that. She's just mm-hmm. like, please stop doing whatever so, we yeah, stalkery stop, stop crap you're doing. Me. <laughs> <laughs> and the minute Guppy sees her in the veil, he's like, oh, maybe she's going to accept my proposal. And then she takes off the veil and he's like, thank God that she said no. And now I have to get it illegal. I have to have a witness to the fact that our engagement, not that it ever existed, could never be because <laughs> the veil came off. Mr. Mr. Guppy uh, showing his true colors. Yeah, but then she runs into Mr. Alan Woodcourt just like at the seaside when he's coming home because he was he's a national hero now, BG dubs, because of his ship being stranded out off the coast of India, uh, and him saving every single person on it. Uh and and even he, she notes in her narration that even he seems really taken aback by the change in her appearance and that he's like really he gets really angry at joe who comes back in this chapter and he like is grossed out and upset by and angry at a sick young boy in the street because joe gave her the illness oh right yeah um, and adding to the body count of this section also yes. yeah. yep. joe kicks yep. it joe's dead joe's dead talking horn is dead um still pretty sure either ada or richard or both are gonna die but like- uh, richard is definitely gonna die because esther basically he was telling us he's yeah. going okay to die. we're gonna get to that later we're gonna get to that later but this book is definitely gonna have a high body count uh, yeah but- the i did find joe's death scene uh that passage yeah. very moving yeah. um where basically i i can't remember the, all of it but um uh, Dickens finishes it uh, where, you know, so Joe dies and quote and dying thus around us every day, which, um, you know, it's, I, you forget, I, I forget sometimes that this is a, you know, overtly mm-hmm. political. Novel. Yeah, absolutely. It, and he, that he does that all the time is that he does have quite a bit of compassion um, for people, but not for Harold Skimpole, who maybe we'll talk about later, but I did want to just like bring up the point that I do think that Esther's friendship with Ada is very romantic. Like, just in the way that she talks about her, like it, she thinks she's really beautiful. She really cares about her good opinion. She calls her my darling. And there's this one part in the book where she says like the road ahead of us is long and perhaps now I can see it at an end. And I think, I think I see my darling. She's obviously talking about Ada, not Woodcourt, but she does have this other thing going with Woodcourt. Like she is also into him, but it seems like part of it is that I think romantic female friendships are very common in Victorian novels and also just in life, like this generally the way that it sort of works. But I wonder if it's because a lot of men and a lot of marriages in this book are predicated on how stiffly separated the gender roles have to be and that like men are not allowed to like have a sentimental side. So if you want to have romantic feelings, you kind of have to have them with a woman, like another woman. Like that's just the only way that you're allowed to express those feelings. Or with the sea. Or with the sea. <laughs> or, with, or with your gunshot. <laughs> or, with your, or with the wall of your gunshot. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Esther. Fascinating. Yeah, I, think, I, am, I am more and more into Esther the more I read this book. I like your framing of that. Because uh, that makes I'm, me more curious. I'm less, less into Esther. <laughs> well, you're both men. And uh, if this book has taught us anything, it's that men are terrible. Yeah. So. <laughs> it, yeah, no, it's true. Um I, I, I have some questions about Esther. I don't like her narration where she knows, I mean, I get it. It's the narrative device, but she knows a lot more than she lets on. And yet she keeps hinting at everything she knows. Um, I also think she took her Lady Deadlock's word for it oddly quickly. She was like, oh yeah, right. You're my mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas like, it's obvious to everyone else. I, you know, it seemed like it would have had a little more emotional impact on her. Well, I think that that was also paired with Lady Deadlock being like, oh, man, this was so nice, and it's never going to happen ever again. So, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right. Esther says, quote, it would have been better and happier for many people if indeed I had never breathed. <laughs> It's like, oh, come on, come on, Esther. Poor Esther. You're both the worst. Uh, all right. Those are the WTF questions. Let's move ahead to prediction time. We're going to play a game in a little bit. But uh, I would like both of you to give me a prediction about the end of this book that is so hot, it causes someone to spontaneously combust. Mm. Yes? Uh, I don't know how hot of a take this is. But my prediction is that Jarndyce is going to die, leave all his money to Esther, and Esther's going to end up living in Bleak House with Woodcourt. Oh, okay. Okay, happy ending for Esther. I like it. I like it. Uh, other Ben, what yeah, you got? I was going to say that there's, the body count is going to continue to rise exponentially, and I think that Esther is going to be one of the only surviving people <laughs> in Bleak House, in control of the wealth, and pretty much everyone's going to be dead. I like this a lot. I'm going to bounce off this one and say um, everyone rich dies, uh, <laughs> except for Esther. I agree. Esther somehow gets the money. Lady Deadlock uh, did not shoot Tulkinghorn, but she does hang for it. Hortense Whoa. shot Tulkinghorn, kills herself because she's just so distraught because it turns out she did really love Lady Deadlock. Um Esther has, like, a she's a carrier for this disease now, even though she doesn't have it anymore. So Richard, Ada, and Woodcourt, get it, dead. Jarndyce, uh, <laughs> old age, dead, because I'm assuming he's, like, 70. I have no idea. Yeah, what, how old is he? Also, my main question is how long, like, what is the time span we're dealing with this in this book? Is it over the course, like, not counting the first chapter of Esther's where it, it covers her whole childhood? I, like, once she gets adopted into Bleak House... Are we like a I think couple it's of years? Four I don't know. To six years. Yeah, yeah, because like okay. a lot of winters pass and springs pass, so yeah, it's a couple of years. Okay. I, yeah, I was losing track of time. Um, oh, I, I will amend my hot take to say that Richard kills Jarndyce. Oh, fun! I That's like nice. that. I like that. And in the end, the book ends with Esther being like a merry spinster who can finally like feel all of her feelings and live in Bleak House alone. But the other person who lives is Mr. George, and she sets up like a nice little pension for him, and he's like the groundskeeper. Uh-huh. He lives in the pool house. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's my crazy prediction. Like uh, hopefully, hopefully, someone will spontaneously combust. I, all I right, comes into let us. Oh yes, PP does not die. <laughs> he got he. Pee-pee comes into a lot of crust, uh, courtesy of Mr. Turbidrop, uh, apparently. Nor does Caddy, because I like her, so she but, does not die. Caddy is secretly the second best character. I agree with that. Uh, so before we play our game, let's move on to our newest segment, the Dickens-Burns Power Rankings. Uh, are there any updates, Ben? Oh, yeah. I got I got a lot from this section. or I, got, I have a few from this section. Right. I have a couple honorable mentions uh, where Richard is compared to Miss Flight. <laughs> Our our old cronyish uh, bird collector who lived above <laughs> Mr. Crook, which uh, I believe Esther compares him to Miss Flight, which I thought was a particularly good burn coming from Esther, who is not known for her burns. True. Um, I mentioned the previous the burn where the little child in town asks why Esther is no longer a pretty lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, also good. Um, and there is uh, one of we mentioned Mr. Skimpole, which we could go long on Mr. Skimpole because he's just. You know, in a book of terrible people, he's maybe the worst person in this book. Stunning how awful he is. But Dickens Dickens describes Mrs. Skimple, his wife, as, quote, a high-nosed invalid suffering under a complication of disorders. Uh, Great, great burn, (laughs) I thought. Uh, (laughs) uh, But um, truly, 
the best Dickens reserved his best burns for our, our good dear departed friend, Mr. Tolkienhorn in this book. Um, he is described as, uh, and one, and one line, his smile is as dull and rusty as his pantaloons. I love that. That was a good description. But then I also want to read, um, this it's, it's, uh, it's a paragraph long. It's a description of Tolkienhorn. Um, I, I believe sort of right around the time of him revealing him or revealing what he knows to Lady Deadlock and then shortly before his death. And it really just is, it doesn't, it's not a really clever burn, but it just sort of paints the most uh, depressing picture of who Mr. Tolkienhorn is. So I want to, I'm going to read this at length, if you will let me. Go for it. Uh, and it is, quote, like a dingy London bird among the birds at a roost in these pleasant fields where the sheep are all made into parchment, the goats into wigs and the pasture into chaff, the lawyer smoke dried and faded, dwelling, a man, dwelling among mankind, but not consorting with them, aged without experience of genial youth, and so long used to make his cramped nest in holes and corners of human nature that he's forgotten its broader and better range, comes sauntering home. In the oven made by the hot pavements and hot buildings, he has baked himself drier than usual, and he has, in his thirsty mind, his mellowed port wine half a century old. I just, I love that, and it was just like, wow, Dickens, let him up. <laughs> Yeah, that was really, really point. I thought the descriptions all around Tolkienhorn's last hours were quite incredible. Yeah. Also, shout out to Skimpole's daughters, who he has a beauty daughter, a uh, what is that, a beauty daughter, and uh, art daughter, but then also a comedy daughter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which who could like, who could damn. ask for more daughters? Come on, seriously. Uh, one of them is has blue eyes because he has birthday party for his blue eyed daughter. Uh, yeah. Paul, ugh, God, Skin Paul is the worst. Um, maybe he'll come up in our in our next little game here, where we play <laughs> the die of death. Yeah, it's time to play a game. We're gonna roll a six sided die, and the number we roll will determine the game each of us will play. We can play. Wow, this got racist. Who goes Nazi? Would you rather pitch the bad gritty reboot? Who's gonna die? And who's gonna bang? Uh, who would like to go first? Uh, I'll go first. All right, all right. Great. I'm rolling for you. I'm rolling for you, Ben. You got a three. You got Would You Rather, which is mm -hmm. very fun and silly this week. So, uh, Would You Rather marry broke-ass entitled Richard, who really goes into serious debt in this section, or marry financially sound but extremely creepy Mr. Jarndyce? Definitely go with Richard. <laughs> really? Why would you pick the, Richard? The man's got a passion. He's got this, this case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he seems, yeah, like, the other Ben was saying earlier of, like, that it seems like I, I became suddenly endeared to him because he's like, man, I'm not good at anything, but I'm being consumed completely by figuring this thing out. And even though um, Esther's like, don't, don't, don't worry about this case. He's like, nah, I'm going to do it. I'm poor. I've got tons of debt. Yeah, I, I would. I, I think Richard would be fun. That's great. All right, next question. Uh, ben, would you rather somehow be disfigured by a magic illness or be Phil Squad? Definitely Phil Squad. <laughs> like, he's, yeah, no, he's like couch surfer extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, he's seemingly living at the shooting gallery. George is like his best friend by default because George is the person that, like, rescued him off of the streets uh -huh. and yeah it seems like he's just i don't know yeah he, he doesn't have any money but he doesn't have any debt <laughs> this is he, true this he is has true. no money he doesn't have no money 
He's not, you know? he's not skimple. He's not yeah. like, yeah. All right. Next question. Would you rather talk to co- cousin Villaminia every day for an hour or bang grandpa Smallweed one time? Oh man. <laughs> oh, so gross. What is wrong with you? <laughs> just bang that tag just... close. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna go with cousin Volumina. I'm not. Yeah, you're you're gonna be cool talking to her, talking with her every day about how the rich should stay rich and all the poor people should know their place for an hour every day. Oh, I just put her on speakerphone. <laughs> and all and all the and all the. Well, I guess you you know, I guess you don't have to see the makeup in her one pearl necklace that everyone hates because it's too youthful for her anyway. I think that's better than throwing up every time <laughs> I think of what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> all right last would you rather and everyone can play these uh so we uh, we all know the mary bang kill um i have changed it to mock imprison or kill because there are a lot of terrible people in this book and i just wanted to talk about how terrible they all are so the first one for mock imprison or kill uh guppy skimpole or mr snagsby and mr snagsby um i'm gonna go mock guppy Kill Skimpole, <laughs> and I guess that means imprison Snagsby. <laughs> um, I would imprison Guppy for stalking and mock Snagsby yeah. for not like talking to his wife like a normal human. <laughs> but at least we all agree that Skimpole needs to die. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kill- yeah, Skimpole. Kill Skimpole. All right, yeah. the next one is uh, Mock and Prison Kill, Talking Horn, Sir Lester, or Mr. Voles, who is Richard's lawyer, who is, like, a, a colorless eel person. Yes. <laughs> um, I think we're going to kill Talking Horn in prison, uh, Mr. Sir Lester, and I've been mocking <laughs> V-Holes this entire time, <laughs> because that's the only way I can read his name. Every time it would come up, I'd be like, V-Holes, What? <laughs> <laughs> that's too good uh i agree with your ranking entirely i totally agree um maybe we all killed talking horn together it's like a spartacus moment we all did Vols. it took me like <laughs> reading that name eight times to be like oh Vols. Vols. Yeah, he has, he has three daughters and his father in the veil of taunton to support oh so. and can we talk wait is it <laughs> Is it Vols that has the... No, it's... Uh, sorry. Um, what's his name? Bagnet. Bagnet. That has the kids with the weird names. Oh, because it's not their actual yeah. names. Yes. They all, that's not their real names. They just... The kids' nicknames are all the nicknames of where they were born. Oh, I thought that that was like a Park Slope move. <laughs> I thought... No, I no, thought they named them There's a section... I'll find it for the next time. But there's a section where they say that they call them after where they're born. But they have like regular oh, names. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, which is amazing well, because it reminds me of that Tracy Jordan joke in 30 Rock when uh, he and Angie have the daughter and they're like, we're going to name her after she where she was conceived. Elevator. Back of my car. Virginia. And they're like, Virginia is good. You should name her Virginia. Uh, but that, those are the kids. All right. All right, Ben. It is your turn. Ben C. I'm rolling for you. Let's do it. You got six. Who's going to bang? Who's left? Oh today? wow! Um, I mean, I think Jarndyce and Esther are gonna bang. Gross. Um, and it'll be this weird, you know, Victorian sort of. You know, you don't. He's not actually gonna say they bang, but it'll be like, 
and the wind swept through the window and the candles blew out and Mr. You know, John glue, you know, glowed Ooh. with the, uh, glue. Like, just glue. <laughs> he, he glowed like glue in the night. Um, I think if they do, it's going to be like a Middlemarch situation, which has a bunch of really subtle references to how the main, one of the main characters marries a man much older than her. And, um, it's, it's implied very heavily that he has ED and they can't have sex because he's so old. Because uh, he can't get it up. I mean, and she's really I, unhappy. I, she's, like, really unhappy. <laughs> that might be true. I, I do think, I mean, going back to my other prediction, I think, again, we won't see it, but Woodcourt and Esther are going to have children by the end of this book. Uh, yeah. And they're going to be named Richard and Ada after Richard and oh, Ada. will be dead. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm, I'm rolling for myself. And I got one. Wow, this got racist. That's <laughs> my favorite category. You get this one every time. I really do. I think it's because the universe knows how I feel. Uh, I did write some stuff down um, about this, even though this section was, it did not contain any slavery apologia. So that was, that was uh, interesting and probably for the best. Um, I mean, there aren't that many things in this section that are super racist, but there was a one description that I was like, wait, this is weird. Like, this is a weird thing. And I'm going to read it to you. <clears throat> Um, I have no idea what this is describing. I think it's some kind of like painting. Yeah, it's a it's one of the deadlock paintings in the house when they're talking about how the house is usually really ugly, except for at the golden hour when mm. it gets really light and you can see all the paintings and all of a sudden all the dead deadlocks look happy and it's beautiful. And then it gets dark and shadowy and everything's awful again. Uh, so they're describing a, a, one of the paintings and it says a maid of honor of the court of Charles II with large round eyes and other charms to correspond seems to bathe in glowing water and ripples as it glows. And I was like, what? What other large round charms are there? Is this just about her tits? Like, this is so weird. It's like, why did you just throw this random, like, let's check out this dead lady's boobs in this book? Uh, that was my one moment where I was just like, what? Who is this for, even? Dickens just got real horny in that one second. <laughs> It was gross and weird. Um, the other part of the book that I think is not quite like extremely overly sexist, but is definitely like part of uh, it's sexist in coloring, at least, is when it's Mrs. Bagnet or Bagnet's birthday, and Mr. Bagnet is like, "Oh, she's the best woman in the world, so I'm going to make sure that she can just like relax all day and take care of her." And he like makes her the worst lunch that there is. <laughs> like he makes her these garbage birds that he buys and he has and she has to spend the whole day being like oh yep you're all doing a great job well while she's internally <laughs> wincing at how they're burning the food and like breaking her dishes and she's super stressed out and it's like oh, i guess this is funny but it is also just part of the narrative of how women always have to pretend that men are doing a good job because if they even for one second try to teach them something that man would either get really angry or be emotionally devastated forever and it's yeah, you have to, so you have to irritating the, the, so the that's crying. The trying is all. There is one. <laughs> I love this. I love this section, and I really want to read the pa the one sentence from the passage you just described because it was on my long list of burns. Um, and it is it, Dickens writes. It is well for the old girl that she has but one birthday in a year. For two such indulgences in poultry might be injur <laughs> injurious. <laughs> Whereas, like, if yeah. she eats her husband's cooking more than once a year, she will die. And it's like, she would much rather just do all of this herself, but she has to, even though, so she like never gets a day when people just take care of her. 
because they can't and they will never learn. <laughs> it's just infuriating. This poor woman, she's obviously extremely smart. She's the brains of the family. She knows how to do everything. Ugh. I want a book about her. Yeah, she is she is the most respectable character in this book, I think. I I think that's I think that's true. I think that's true. All right, that was the die of death. We played it. We gave you our insane predictions. We are reading next week chapters 50 through to the end. We'll be done with Bleak House. And then after that, we will read Anne of Green Gables, which is much shorter and much sillier. So we're very excited for that. Um, I hope you all have a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to Cannonballs. And if you want to talk to us, you can tweet at us at Cannonballs Pod. That's Cannon with only two N's, C-A-N-O-N, Balls Pod on Twitter. Um, and you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast from. Benz. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you for joining me. Of course. It was a pleasure Aww. as always. <laughs> I'm very excited for the last and final episode of ben, uh, Bleak House, a.k.a. The Bencast. Yeah. <laughs> Next week. The Bencast Network. <laughs>